All right, all right, all right, all right. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser-known true crime stories. How is everyone doing? It's been super busy here in Anywhere USA. As the weather starts warming up and activities start getting planned, some dance cards get kind of filled. And also, I just dropped an episode a week ago. So there's that. Yay! To this month. Which is good. I couldn't leave you guys hanging. You thought I was going to forget about another episode this month. You guys are silly. Um, I've also been whilst working on this particular episode. Um, and even the last one. Hell's Bells. All the time. I'm always like consuming a lot of true crime documentaries. Um, the most recent ones would be... Uh, I went through the whole uh, Pam Hupp. Dateline, um, the uh, miniseries. I remember all of the episodes because I love Dateline as well as the latest episode that they did. I also checked out uh, the John Wayne Gacy tapes on Netflix. There's also a very interesting one about Carrie Stainer, the Yosemite killer, uh, the bad vegan, of course. I also saw uh, Kim Valls. That one would be on HBO Cinemat. Uh, HBO Max. Uh, Invisible Pilot's also up there. Uh, I watched the one about Ghislaine, Partner in Crime. Ooh, Jimmy Seville. And a whole lot more. So, yeah, I've been taking in a lot of true crime uh, whilst doing this. It's kind of like a little decompression because this episode is very dark. But, um, you know, intermittently. Also, uh, because this episode was taken most of the information is compiled from the trial of this particular situation i also was catching a little bit of snippets of this trial that is making its headlines and i have been uh, mortified saddened and also amused by some of the witnesses that's all i'm gonna say about that one anywho i thank you all for being here again. You know, I love you so much. I appreciate you. I adore you. With that being said, it's time for me to say thank you, thank you, thank you. You're far too kind. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's your shout out time. Howdy, Dallas, Pflugerville, Houston, Austin, Marshall, and San Antonio, Texas. Thank you for tuning in. Denver, Commerce City, Arvada, Colorado Springs, Thornton, and Westminster, Colorado. Hey, Los Angeles, Sacramento, Riverside, Fontana, San Francisco, and Hayward, California. Thank you for listening, Washington, D.C. Welcome back, Alexandria, Arlington, Hampton, Manassas, Richmond, and Henrico, Virginia. How is it going, Philadelphia, Levittown, Pittsburgh, Greensburg, Erie, and Birdsboro, Pennsylvania? Warmest thanks to my friends in Australia, Germany, Can- Canada, Ghana, Nigeria, Kenya, Thailand, Puerto Rico, Barbados, and Jamaica for coming back. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the likes, shares, and subscribes. Don't forget to join the What Had Happened Facebook group and follow all of the social accounts that can be found in the description box with my references per the usual. So, last episode, I discussed the unsettling murders of Bison Dele, Serena Carlin, and Bertrand Saldo in the Pacific Ocean at the hands of his brother, Miles DeBoard. 
<clears throat> Today I will be discussing what had happened in 2014 when a single father of five small children did the unthinkable. Timothy Ray Jones Jr. was born December 20th, 1981 to teenage parents Timothy Ray Sr. and Cynthia Grenados. Tim Sr. himself was born to a mother who was 12 years old. Already off the boot, dumpster juice alert. His biological father was his step-grandfather, who had raped his mother and her sisters beginning when she was eight years old. After giving birth at tw 12, Tim Sr.'s mother, Roberta, gave birth to two more of her stepfather, Ted Montaigne's children, before he married her. Roberta was 16 and her husband 39, though the wedding license stated she was 22. As a teenager, Roberta was forced into prostitution at the hands of her husband. At 17, Roberta was able to escape her marriage with her child with her children in tow. At 17, Roberta had met and married her still husband, Larry. The young family of five spent many years running from state to state until finally when Tem Sr. was in middle school, his parents were able to put down roots in Illinois. His mother would take to drinking alcohol and subsequent acts of rage and violent outbursts. <sighs> it's a cycle, and it, it, this is why I'm giving you all of this background, because it's going to really play. Roberta would divorce Larry and marry her third husband, which was short-lived, before she and Larry Thornsbury remarried. At around 16, Tim Sr. dropped out of high school and met Cynthia Grenados, who was also 16 and a dropout at that time. Coming from a similar background of abuse and familial trauma, the two connected quickly. Cynthia would begin spending more and more time at the Thornsbury home, so much so that it worried Roberta. When she called Cynthia's mother to discuss it, Maggie, Cynthia's mother, said it was fine, that she was fine with it, and that Cynthia essentially, and then Cynthia essentially moved in. In 1981, the couple would, <clears throat> I'm sorry, in March 1981, February, March, the couple would become pregnant with Tim Jr. <coughs> Excuse me. During her pregnancy, Roberta began to notice things about Cynthia she found odd, like squirrely. Cynthia wouldn't eat with the family. She wouldn't be in the same room alone with Larry. Now, some of these things, I believe, take... I believe stem from the fact that she came from a similarly horribly abusive background, such, such as, you know, very similar to the one that Roberta came from. So if she didn't want to be in the same room with the male of the household, the head male of the household, then, you know, it's probably cause she was afraid that, you know, he would try something because that's what she was accustomed to. But that wasn't obviously the case in this instance, but you know, that's where her head was. When Tim Jr. was born, Cynthia failed to connect to her new baby, but also refused to allow Tim Sr. and Roberta to attend to Tim Jr. Cynthia was said to have given Tim Jr. laxatives, stating that she didn't want a fat baby. 
there were so many instances that she would just let Tim Jr. wail and just scream and scream and scream and wouldn't let anybody attend to him either. Um, although the union of Senior and Cynthia was volatile, the couple would again find themselves pregnant. Late in her pregnancy, okay, it has been insinuated, insinuated that she self-aborted the son that they would formally name William. This type of erratic and abusive behavior went on for roughly two and a half years before Cynthia would disappear with Tim Jr. only to turn up in Florida. Like she had times where she would just take the baby prior to this and just like dip for like days on end before returning. But at this time, she left, and she left for good. So Senior was able to regain custody of Junior with the help of his mother, Roberta, um, filling in as a maternal figure after a whole lot of, you know, back and forth and stuff. Tim Senior was able to bring his son back to Illinois. While in the home, the youngster was living in a still very dysfunctional home. Although it was filled with love, there was still a lot of verbal abuse and physical abuse and substance abuse being witnessed, you know, by young Tim Jr. in his grandmother Roberta's home. When Tim Jr. was nine years old, his father remarried. When he was 10, he moved in with his father and his stepmother. The family blended well, and soon Tim was joined by two younger brothers. Tim Jr. was described as an extremely intelligent young man with a keen interest in computers and math, as well as a love for God. Um, this isn't in the script, but his first stepmother would recall that when he was a youngster, he would go to church on Sunday, you know, leave at 8 o'clock in the morning, and then come back five hours later you know, um, with the joy, 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 joy down in his heart, you know, because he had spent five hours and his father at the, you know, his father was raised Baptist. So at the time, you know, as a youth, he was spending time in the Baptist church. And so that's what he was doing. Um, but he was also a literal thinker. So he would take the Bible literally like word for word. It was black and white. There was no gray area. There was no leeway it was never seen as a, the Bible was never seen as a book full of parables and ways to go about one's life. He took it literally. Okay. And he was steadfast and resolute in that. The family, as I said, blended well. And although slightly awkward, Tim Jr. was described as a normal, as a normal child. At the age of 15, things began to shift. It began when Tim Jr. was in a car accident. On the exterior, it would only seem as though Tim had walked away from this accident with a broken leg but uh, and otherwise unscathed. But internally, he was suffering from a depressed head fracture that was going untreated. Um, and I guess his head was like swelling and growing, but he had a lot of hair you know, it like a, he had a really nice shag of fringe in the front. And so it wasn't very noticeable at first. He also had visible indent. He also had indentations from the, yeah, it was bad. 
Um, but again, the hair covered it. So his parents didn't know that, you know, his dad and his stepmother didn't know that this existed. Um, at this time, Tim began to change in personality, but his family assumed it was just adolescent growing pains and transitioning into adulthood. Experimentation with LSD, marijuana, cocaine, and alcohol began, as well as making poor decisions and getting into trouble. But the family just thought it was him growing up. On the flip side, he, he still set you know very high goals for himself. And there was a teeter between the old Tim Jr., who was an overall good kid, albeit headstrong and firm in his thoughts and convictions, and the new Tim Jr., who was slipping into the generational cyclone of addictions and mental illness. His mother was schizophrenic. Whilst in high school, Tim dreamed of becoming a Navy SEAL. After graduating from high school in 2000, he shipped off for the Navy, only to return home after six weeks of training when he was discharged. After his discharge, Tim began getting into trouble. At 19 years old, he'd been arrested in March 2001 for cocaine possession, then again in September for burglary, car theft, and check fraud, when he forged checks from his father's checkbook racking up like $2,800 in overdraft fees. At that point, that's when the bank steps in and says either we charge you, sir, or we charge the fraudulent party. And so Tim Sr. really didn't, his hands were kind of tied because at the time he and his wife were in, like trying to buy a home. And so he was just getting boned on this one. And so, you know, Tim had to, you know, man up on that one. Tim Jr. would end up being sentenced to seven years, but served one before being released due to the trouble he'd gotten into, you know, September past. So whilst incarcerated, Tim Jr. participated in what his family members would describe as a boot camp. And I've seen these types of things on like Lock Up Raw or whatever that one show is. Um, I've seen it where... Um, First-time offenders, especially younger ones, will be put through like a boot camp type situation where they're taught discipline and hopefully they can be reintegrated into society seamlessly and become productive members. So also during this time, Tim Jr. re-embraced his sobriety and delved deeper into his religious beliefs and faiths. When Tim was released January 2003, he began working diligently towards his future, as well as delving deeper into his faith. I could not find which churches he attended, but he was a, was it a fundamentalist Christian, Christian fundamental, fundamentalist Christian. Um, he was Pentecostal at this point, and the church that he belonged to believed in things like speaking in tongues and uh, things of that nature. So there's that. Tim first attended community college and worked towards attaining, you know, attending a four-year university. In the spring of 2004, 22-year-old Tim became smitten with a 19-year-old named Amber. 
It took no time for the couple to discover they were aligned in many ways, especially in their beliefs. More so like, you know, he was talking and he and she, you know, he was talking to her and she was like, you know what, I'm okay with that. That makes all the sense to me. Um, it took no time for the couple to discover that they were aligned, as I said, and Tim had a very literal, again, interpretation of the teachings of the Bible. Tim felt that women should be seen and not heard, women should dress like women, and have modesty. So no bride of his would be allowed to show skin, uh, she would be demure, she would obey her husband and do as he said, as well as maintaining the homestead and taking care of the children. Tim also felt that it was his responsibility as the man of the house to be the provider, and thusly, he was in complete control of running the running of his home. What he said would be the final word, and his bride and children would need to be obedient in the eyes of the Lord. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Uh, spare the rod, spoil the child. With that being said, long courtships and dating were also frowned upon within, you know, the church that he was attending. So, shortly after the two met and decided that they were into each other and that this was the lifestyle that they were going to lead together and they were with it, they got married that June. Following the marriage, the young couple moved around a bit. By May 2006, they were living in Pennsylvania. On May 15, 2006, Amber gave birth to the couple's first child, a daughter they lovingly named Mira Gracie. Following the birth of Mira, the couple then moved to Mississippi, where Tim's family in Illinois had planted roots. Eleven months following the birth of daughter Mira, the couple welcomed the birth of their first son, Elias Xavier, on April 22, 2007. At this time, Tim Jr. began attending Mississippi State University, where he studied computer engineering. The Jones family was rapidly expanding as Tim worked and attended university. Eleven days before Elias's first birthday, Amber gave birth to her third child, a baby boy the couple would name Natan. He said, Yeah, he said, I think, yes, he said. I really want to say it right because in the trial, the attorneys couldn't get it. They, everybody was flopping around or just omitting it, and I want to give him his propers. In 2011, Tim Jr. would become the first member of his family to graduate from college, graduating summa cum laude, obtaining his bachelor's degree in uh, computer engineering. Shortly after graduating from Mississippi State, Tim Jr. was hired by Intel in South Carolina, making roughly like 70, 80-ish thousand dollars. And Amber was pregnant with baby number four. It appeared that the rapidly expanding family would, in fact, be fine after years of grinding and hard work, scrimping and all of that. Everything was going to be much better. Ever frugal, Tim Jr. purchased a trailer in Red Bank, South Carolina. With the help of Tim Sr. and his new stepmother, Julie, Tim Jr. had planned to make the new family home far more comfortable. Admittedly, the trailer was older, worse for wear, and needed a lot of work. But Tim Jr. had a plan and a vision that he could not be steered from. 
It's been said that at this time, when Amber learned that she wasn't going to have, you know, a home and the lifestyle she'd hoped would come with this new position that he'd obtained um, straight out of university, she became detached and less of a homemaker. And uh, I hate to say it, but kind of like a little bit. There might have been some other things working on within her. She might have had some baby blues because she was having a lot. She had a lot of children at a very quick, you know, pace. But following a September visit from Tim Jr.'s family, a call to DSS, which is the Department of Social Services in South Carolina, was made. When the home was finally inspected, Mira, age five, Elias, four, and Natan, three, were clean and being homeschooled by their pregnant mother, and the home was in disarray and in need of cleaning. Tim Jr. took it upon himself to rectify the issue by thoroughly cleaning the trailer, or, you know, straightening up. He tidied, um, per what the reports are saying. Two weeks later, in October, when social workers followed up again, they found that the home was again cluttered with uncovered air vents. I don't want to, like, femsplain air vents to people, but if you've never been inside of a trailer, air vents are found within the flooring. And um, if the house is old enough, or if the trailer's old enough, they, it's probably not even screwed in, um, and you can just pop them out. And then you've got a, a hole, a rectangular hole, that... A small child could get their arm or leg caught in so that's a problem anywho the issues were again rectified and the case was closed after concluding that the allegations were unfounded four days after the case was closed on October 28 2011 Police were called to the Jones residence after Tim Jr. became hostile towards the visiting DSS social worker. So here's the thing: when a case gets, when a when a when a, when a claim is made, they have 60 days uh, to to act on, you know, s starting to do the investigating. And depending on what the you know whatever the issues are, they will if they don't have a super high caseload, they will come back, you know, like from what I could see in the Jones family issue every couple of weeks or so until they finally close the case within that two month period. So at this time, Tim Jr. became hostile towards the visiting social worker um, after giving Tim an in-depth list of things that needed to be fixed within the home repaired or replaced the family was placed in a hotel temporarily the social worker would explain to tim that the case against him wasn't reported child abuse so he needed to get that notion out of his head or neglect it was simply that there was a risk of injury within the home due to the conditions within the residence because they had exposed tools and you know various stages of renovation going on you know, within the home, it was a safety issue. It wasn't because people were saying they were beating the brakes off of the children or anything like that. So, after that happened, uh, on Halloween, when the social workers returned, they found the home was in pristine condition. The case was closed, but the family was reassigned to a different social worker. So, I feel like at this point, you're in the system. So, they're, you know what I mean? They're going to 
they're going to keep their eye on you. And that is a feeling that you don't like to have, especially if you really haven't done anything. On December 5th, 2011, Amber gave birth to the couple's third son, Gabriel Asher. At this point, the marriage between Amber and Tim was disintegrating rapidly. Years of seclusion and having to toe the line began to take its toll on Amber. While there were very few neighbors around, Amber struck up a friendship and later carried out an extramarital affair with the neighbor's son, who I'm only stating this age because if you go back and you start reading, everybody's going to say, it was, he was 17. Nay, nay. 17 or 19 or something. It was some absurdly, it was a young age. No, no. He was not a child. He was three years younger than her. So. Now, pregnant for the fifth time by Timothy and tired of Tim's control and the abuse that she had withstood. I mean, she, whilst on trial later on, you know, she says some things about the abuse within the marriage. Like, uh, at one point in time when the children were in the backseat of the car, he wanted to play chicken with an 18-wheeler and nearly killed her and then laughed um so that kind of thing was going on and she just said screw it i'm out left him she left amber left him the spring of 2012 and she took the children with her like wanting nothing more to do nothing wanting more to put his than to put his family back together though tim began undergoing marriage and family counseling and so there was some back and forth during this time as Amber and Tim attempted to reconcile. However, that was short-lived. After a summer of custodial issues, Tim was awarded temporary custody of Mara, Elias, Natan, and Gabriel. Uh, during this time, Tim began utilizing babysitters to care for his four small children. Most of them he was finding on Craigslist. Or word of mouth. On December 12th, 2012, Amber gave birth to Abigail Elizabeth, whose name would later be changed to Elaine Marie in honor of Tim Jr.'s aunt, who had passed away years before from cancer. When Elaine was four months old, Tim would take custody of her as well, moving her into the increasingly cramped trailer he was now sharing with his five children his okay she was 17 at the time that she began babysitting and moved in 17 year old teenage babysitter turned girlfriend and her small child tim's strictness headstrong stubbornness and devout dedication to his faith as a fundamentalist christian were a lot to take in his outbursts and means of discipline towards the children was what ended this new relation pretty much as quickly as it began from there the children were kept by a handful of other babysitters who all contested that the jones children were wonderful and tim was a great dad amber herself would also say that she gave the children to tim because he was a great dad and she knew that he loved his he loved their children and he would you know do what was best as well as the fact that he was able to provide for them 
Um, by October 2013, the divorce was finalized and Tim was awarded primary custody of all five children. The stress of being a young single father with five children began to take its toll on Tim. This is where the powder cake begins to rumble. In May 2014, DSS became involved with the Jones family yet again. This time there were allegations of abuse brought against Tim Jr. On May 5th, Natan's kindergarten teacher noticed suspicious bruising around his neck. As a teacher, she was contractually obligated, you know, to report this to DSS immediately. And because of the nature of the report, DSS immediately interviewed Natan at school. Following the interview with the child, Tim Jr. was informed of the reported abuse. When he was interviewed, Tim explained that Natan had essentially demolished a train set Tim Jr. and Elias had been working very hard on. Tim said and demonstrated how he jerked Natan by his shirt collar, which resulted in the marks on Natan's neck. A no-discipline safety plan was put into action, prohibiting Tim from using any physical means of discipline towards the children, such as spanking or corporal punishment, as well as prohibiting Tim from horseplay and wrestling with the children. At the follow-up drop-in on May 15th, the social worker arrived as the Jones family celebrated Mara's 8th birthday with cupcakes. While Amber was not physically present for her daughter's birthday celebration, she was on the phone when the social worker arrived to do her drop-in inspection. It's during this time that Tim began also utilizing synthetic cannabis to cope and silence the voices and hallucinations he'd worked for years to keep at bay. The case would eventually be unfounded and closed by the agency. As summer break began for the Jones children, they were introduced to another babysitter who would watch the children from roughly 7 a.m. to 6 p.m., 6.30-ish, 7 p.m., Monday through Friday. While the children were delightful and full of energy, Joy Lorick, the children's babysitter, said that there were a few red flags that unsettled her. The first being that while caring for the children, primarily the only food source available to feed the children throughout the day, every day, was oatmeal. She began to worry that the children weren't being fed adequately in the evening when they were with Tim, but she couldn't broach the subject with him as he was extremely firm in his stance that the children were his and he had final say over all that involved them. She also noticed at one point a strong chemical odor that permeated the entire trailer um, and it made herself and the children physically ill Though Tim quickly denied any odor when she inquired about it and quickly left for work. That summer, Ms. Lorick would accompany the Jones family on two trips. First to Myrtle Beach and finally to Disney World. During these trips, Ms. Lorick observed some odd behavior from her employer. 
such as his disappearances from the family where he would reemerge drenched in sweat and slightly altered. It was Tim's reemergence to the hotel room in, at Disney World that really took Ms. Lorick aback. Alone in the room with the children, the boys began to get a little rambunctious and loud. When she asked the children to settle down, they continued. Tim heard this dialogue as he was entering the, the hotel room and proceeded to spank Gabriel and Elias bare ass with his belt. <sighs> Ms. Lorick asked her employer to stop spanking the children. He did, but he also told her that under no uncertain terms, those were his children and nobody would tell him how to discipline them. Shortly after the vacation, Ms. Lorick terminated her employment with the Jones family due to lack of transportation on her part. She was friends with the neighbor who would next babysit for Tim Jones, and she begged her, she begged her to ensure that the children were well fed in the evening prior to their pickup by Mr. Jones. The children's newest sitter promised to do so. Still troubled by the feeding disciplinary habits of Tim at Disney World, Ms. Lorick and an acquaintance of hers decided to call DSS and they filed a, they, they filed a complaint. When DSS social workers arrived at the Joneses' homestead, Tim was overwhelmed. He, and he was also taken aback because this is now like a, a couple of weeks or so since Ms. Lorick had been employed by him and he pretty much said to the social worker when she showed up that he felt like the allegations were coming from a disgruntled former sitter uh the children were inspected for marks and bruising and the refrigerator was inspected while there were no signs of physical abuse visible on the children there was absolutely a, a lack of food or an adequate amount of food for five children um, within the home. While the children were clean and appeared to be in good health, DSS had 45 days remaining to continue their, to investigate the allegations of abuse in the Jones home. Three weeks later, on Thursday, August 28th, 2014, everything would change. It began after picking up the children from the after-school program and the babysitter. Tim and his tribe were near the local Walmart. Tim was charged with unlawful neglect when he somehow put one-year-old Elaine in harm's way whilst forcing his five children out of his Escalade and into an establishment. So he's pissed. Following this event, the Jones family went home. And this is where things begin to get fuzzy. Because Tim Jones admitted that he was smoking the synthetic marijuana, which was not K2, it was K3, and it was the most potent and uh, psychotic-inducing you know, uh, variation of quote-unquote spice or synthetic marijuana. He was ingesting this non-cannaboid, non-cannabis, faux cannabis, I call it pot 
potpourri because it kind of smells like potpourri if you if you've ever smelt it burnt I call it potpourri because it's bullshit um I think it's horrible um the one that he was smoking was mood altering and could call psychosis and he'd been smoking this stuff five times a day roughly since May so He's off doing something, and while he's off doing something, I believe he was probably taking a smoke break, Natan did something that caused four electrical sockets in the home to blow. When Tim learned the sockets were blown, he inquired with Natan, who was silent. Now, the boy was sitting, he was coherent, he just was not saying a word. Furious that Natan wouldn't explain what happened, he called his ex-wife Amber, who tried to call, you know, she tried to calm the situation. Following the phone call, and this is where, where is it? Here we go. Dumpster juice alert. I know that was really loud, but... Stand by, grab hold. Tim resorted to, as we say in the Marine Corps, smoking his six-year-old son. The quarter deck was his living room. And for approximately an hour, Tim, now acting as a, a drill instructor, made Natan alternate between squats and push-ups. Stopping from time to time to further question Natan. Frustrated with getting no answers from Natan, Tim finally sent the boy to bed. In Tim's mind, Natan and his siblings had been conspiring against him and meant him harm. The boy's silence meant that whatever happened to the electrical sockets was a setup to harm Tim. Because had it been an accident, Natan would have just said so. Instead of, you know, assuming that the child was just afraid because he electrocuted himself. And he was afraid that he was going to get in trouble for playing with the electrical sockets. Okay, instead of putting himself in the mind of a six-year-old, he felt that there was a conspiracy. Later, when Tim looked in on Natan, he realized that his son was dead. Panic setting quickly. Okay, I don't even need to hit the dumpster juice alert because this rest that just applies for the rest of the story. <sighs> Tim knew that there was no way that he would be held that he wouldn't be held accountable for the accidental death of Natan. In that moment, Tim had a choice to make, but instead of calling for help, he followed through with what the voices in his head were telling him to do. One by one, Tim manually strangled, strangled Mara and Elias. Gabriel and Elaine's tiny necks were too small to effectively strangle with his bare hands, so he placed his belt around their necks and tightened. The following day, the children didn't show up for school, nor did they go to the babysitter. Tim took the bodies of his five children and placed them inside 
second row of his Cadillac Escalade. Tim covered them with sheets and blankets as he tried to figure out what he was going to do to dispose of them. Tim scribbled various notes describing the different ways to hide what he had done to his family. He took a trip to Walmart with the bodies of the children inside the Cadillac. While at Walmart, he purchased dust masks, saw blades, muriatic acid, and a five-gallon bucket. Over the next nine days, Tim would zigzag throughout the southeast with the children decomposing in the intense heat inside his vehicle. When Amber hadn't heard from Tim, because, you know, after that whole incident of disciplining Natan, she tried to call repeatedly that night um, on the 28th. She got no response. Uh, you know... But finally, when she hadn't, when Tim failed to make their scheduled visit and the children hadn't returned to school, um, you know, that's when, that's when Amber filed a missing persons report for her children and her ex-husband. And that would be on September 3rd, which was a Wednesday. On the evening of Friday, September 5th, Tim's vehicle got stuck in a ditch when he stopped to ask someone for directions. When he was being pulled out of the ditch by a wrecker, an officer who was generally patrolling the area stopped to see if there was any further assistance needed. Unbeknownst to him, he was speaking to a murderer who had five bodies inside his vehicle. And the officer just let him go, just went on about his business. <sighs> on the morning of Saturday, September 6th, Tim found a logging road that had a clearing. And this was uh, in between Camden, let's see here, Camden, Alabama. And see, it was unclear as to where he began that morning at, but he had been driving a lot between uh, Georgia, South Carolina, Alabama, and Mississippi. So he finds this logging road that had a clearing. Tim, when he pulls over, Tim first tried to dismember Natan's leg but couldn't follow through. He then placed all five children inside black trash bags along with various pieces of bedding, clothing, and clutter scooped up with each little body. Taking three trips, Tim placed the bags in the clearing, said a prayer for his children, and drove off. That afternoon, he withdrew $500 with the intention of traveling to Las Vegas. He would be apprehended by Mississippi police when he drove into a vehicle checkpoint. Officers said that Tim was acting strange and was detained for suspicion of operating a motor vehicle while under the influence of drugs or alcohol. When the police ran Tim's license plate, 
it was discovered that Tim and the children had been reported missing from South Carolina. While police continued to search for the five Jones children, Tim remained quiet until he was interviewed by FBI agents. Keep in mind, they have the vehicle and they've processed it. Following his interview and confession, Tim agreed to show the authorities where his children were under the stipulation that they ensured the five children had a proper memorial. On September 11th, 2014, Tim was extradited to South Carolina, where he would later enter a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. May 2019, the trial began. Tim's attorneys would argue that Tim suffered from schizophrenia and a head trauma that occurred when he was 15 years old. While the prosecution portrayed Tim as an angry and bitter ex-husband who would rather kill his children than allow them to live with their mother. After weeks of testimony and one, in, one hour and 45 minutes of deliberation, the jury found Timothy Ray Jones Jr. guilty on all counts. Following the guilty verdict in June 2019 during the penalty phase, Tim was sentenced to death. In 2001, Tim and his legal team began appealing the sentence when he appeared before the South Carolina Supreme Court in November. There are no updates as of yet that I could find. So, what had happened is this. Tim Jones Jr. had the unfortunate genetic predispositions and uh, I don't know. How do we put this? He was born into a very dysfunctional lineage on both sides of the house. That is the best way to put this. Between his father's conception and all that that entailed. To the similar abuse that his mother Cynthia, or Cindy as they called her, withstood at the hands of, I believe it was her father, or, you know, other males, um... And all of that abuse that happened to her siblings, the same as Roberta, so on and so forth, um, and prostitution, things of that nature, substance abuse, he was fucked. I hate to say it that way, but, you know, while you would hope that he would be able to overcome all of those generational curses, it looked kind of bleak. Um, he witnessed a lot. There's a lot of trauma that a child will take in. There's a lot of negative shit that kids take in that they see. And while it's going on and the adults are in their own world doing whatever they're doing, I don't think that it ever registers that this could totally end up fucking these kids up if they continue to see this like i could be potentially breeding a monster you know based off of this 
uh, he was loved. He was very loved by his family, you know, um, especially by his father's family, as dysfunctional as they were. You know, we all, listen, I say that there was a lot of dysfunction, there was a lot of abuse, but they loved. And frankly, a lot of families have a lot of dysfunction, a lot of families have a lot of abuse, you know. It's just the way of the world. It just is what it is. What we do with that trauma is the difference between cats and dogs in some instances. In other instances, when you couple all of that with mental illness and not being treated properly, you could have yourselves powder cake so then you know we have this traumatic head trauma that occurs during this car accident at age 15 that went untreated and as soon as they say that I think of like Aaron Rodgers and or I'm sorry Aaron Rodriguez not Aaron Rodgers Aaron Rodriguez and um football players especially with concussions that, you know, had some tragic endings with, you know, violence and things of that nature. So it was, it was something that was there, I guess, but it did not really um, present itself until afterwards. And they said that when he had this accident, it was like a, a, a change in his complete disposition because he went from being you know a sweet straight laced kid to you know from Dr. Jekyll to Mr. Hyde and it was a back and forth but you could see that there was a struggle an internal struggle because he also had his moral compass that he you know held um and then he started getting in trouble after the disappointment of being discharged during basic training for the navy which, I mean, I can understand that disappointment, you know, you think that you're going to make something of yourself and go off and have this illustrious career, and then you come back before boot camp has even completed with egg on your face. Um, and, you know, it was sad because it was more of, I think it was more of coming back to an I told you so. Because while... Many wouldn't tell him that they didn't think that he could make it as a Navy SEAL. I am sure that there were some people that kind of looked at him skeptically when he said that that was his dream. And he was crestfallen. So he gets in trouble. He goes away. He does some time. The time is good for him. However, I think during that boot camp time, while he was incarcerated, because he was a person who was a literal thinker, um... I think that he took the way that he was disciplined with the other inmates, you know, in a boot camp situation, as well as what he took from that six weeks in the Navy and his beliefs in his, you know, religious convictions. And it got a little bit too intense. Because, you know, as he would go on to become, you know, a great student and 
yes, absolutely a productive member of society. And he rewrote the narrative of Timothy Ray Jones Jr. Once he, you know, was reintroduced into society, met Amber, started having these babies, went to university, obtained his degree, broke generational curses, you know, he did all of this. But he also had that mental illness that he was fighting. Evidently, he was keeping it to himself. And the substance abuse that he, you know, dealt with as a teenager was something that probably was never, ever properly addressed. And so he had that going on. Moves the family out to the sticks and doesn't give, you know, I guess Amber what she thought they were going to obtain and when she was pushed into the arms of another man it sent him into a frenzy because his family was everything to him just like his faith had taught him that his family should be everything to him and he could not concede to losing his wife um and I think that's where the pettiness of referring to the neighbor's son as being a teenager comes from. You know, that's just having a temper tantrum. But, you know, he had lo- you know, he, he was losing control over his home when his wife decided that she could no longer play the play by his rules. And also she you know, she checked out She wasn't doing the things that she, you know, had been doing for a very long time. And she was not necessarily um, the best caregiver at, you know, 100% of the time. Larry Sr., Tim Sr. would say that at one point he came to visit and when he went to pick up one of the children who was still a baby at the time, the child's diaper was so saturated that urine just leaked. And, you know, yeah, stuff like that. Um, You know, sitting around drinking beer, but no food in the refrigerator for the children. But then saying, well, your son hasn't bought food. That kind of thing. I'm not trying to bash her as a mom because I think the whole situation sucked. I wasn't in that marriage. I know that marriages are difficult to, um, they're, they're exclusive to each couple. So it's difficult to really speak on the terms of agreement that each couple has. But from what we can tell, Amber just wasn't with it anymore, so she left. And she contested, even whilst on trial, she contested to how much she felt that Tim was the better parent. And Tim was dedicated to these kids. Tim also had psychosis that was going untreated. And when the marriage dissolved, he slipped into an unhealthy pattern of coping especially when DSS started getting called again and again and again and again. And I guess hmm, 
going to try to rationalize. I feel like he probably felt, uh, while he stated that Scooby, Scooby Snacks, which were his particular brand of this synthetic, um, quieted the voices in his head and the visions and all of that, it actually was counterproductive for him because it was actually, you know, further ramping on the psychosis. But because he was a working professional, um, and he had five small children, he probably, I'm just assuming, because there was a time, and I lived in South Carolina for a minute there, even when this shit hit the market, there was a time when you could walk into virtually any gas station in South Carolina before they banned it, and you could buy a bag of this synthetic stuff along with any of the other tobacco products that were sold at the gas station or the liquor store or, you know, places like the places like that. Um, because it was touted as a faux drug. It wasn't considered a designer drug, which it absolutely is. It was considered not cannabis. It was fake cannabis. So I guess for those people who wanted the effects of smoking weed without the repercussions of, say, a drug test or something like that, I guess, I'm, I'm speculating here, they would go that route. However, it was quickly discovered when spice went onto the market, especially in South Carolina, because you had these military bases, uh, it was no bueno, and they quickly banned it. But it wasn't banned in, in other states. So, like, you could cross state lines and go to, say, Alabama or Mississippi or, you know, certain places where you could obtain it. But now you're trafficking because you're bringing this quote-unquote some, I don't know what the classification was, but it was considered a controlled substance after at some point. Because when you look, when I researched the story, I also found that there were a lot of um, instances where people were being arrested for having K2, K3 spice in their possession for distribution, and it was considered a controlled, controlled substance. Anywho, you mix his inherent um, mental psychosis with the ramped up psychosis that was being created by this substance and you've got yourself a mixture you, you've got yourself you've got yourself a mixture for for dastardliness it's a recipe and you know what's coming out of that oven fuck shit so i assume that after dss started getting back in the mix he's overwhelmed he has five children ages eight seven six two and one you know this full-time job that he had started to you know become a bit finicky with his schedule you know towards leading up to the murder her co-workers and stuff like that you know he's becoming a little bit unreliable at work you know it's the substances that's the abuse that's taking over 
Um, and while he would probably, most likely, he would leave in the morning, leave the children with the sitter, drop the kids off at school, go do whatever he was doing, and then either show up to work late or not show up at all, call out, and then come back home when it was time, when he was normally scheduled to come home. You know, there are many people that, you know, quote-unquote, functioning addicts, I believe, when they start slipping into non-functioning that do shit like that. Um, and then, unfortunately, you know, DSS got wrapped in to... I mean, and I would say, I say unfortunately because his actions, it, had he not reprimanded and disciplined his children the way that he did on that Disney trip, and had he been feeding his children appropriately, Joy Lorick would never have gone behind his back and, you know, expressed her concerns to DSS. But she did express her concerns. The problem is that, you know, social workers are super busy. So yes, they showed up. But when they showed up, you know, it was... a. It was damn near too little too late. First of all, they showed up after the abuse transpired. And then they were unable to make contact again prior to, I believe, this whole thing transpiring. So by August 28th, when he had this minor altercation after picking the kids up and trying to hustle all five in a parking lot situation or something like that I feel like he was heated and then also having all of these safety plans that had been implemented by DSS you know he felt like okay well I can't spank you but I can smoke you which he couldn't but he did and um you know a six-year-old who isn't eating much, by the way, you know you're not feeding your children much. You know that if your kids are in school, if they're not getting a free lunch at school, which they probably didn't qual, they, they may not have qualified for considering his income. Um, you know, if, if your kid was not guaranteed three square meals a day, a full stomach, and you exercise your small child. Because six is still young. Six is tiny. Six is little. You guys, that's itty bitty. Stop playing. You're going to make a six-year-old do squats and push-ups for an hour. Potentially an hour plus. After he electrocuted himself. Yo, little homie didn't say anything because he was in fucking shock. Because he electrocuted himself. Yeah, and also because he didn't want to get in trouble, which he ended up getting in trouble, and his father ended up exercising him to death. That is fucking possible, so stop it. I know some of us get out, and we want to try to be, like, alternative parents who try to do shit, you know, without actually, like, laying hands on our kids and stuff like that. Just fucking stop it. Get the fuck off Paris Island, bro, or wherever the hell you got this shit from. Please just stop. Talk to your kids, please. 
Alright? The day you, the day I make my kids do some fucking mountain climbers and side straddle hops for not answering me is the day I need to revoke my mom card. That's my own personal opinion. Now, I feel like, I mean, and this is just me personally, I feel like once he found out that that child was dead, and again, yes, he had been smoking the spice or whatever, you know, and the psychosis kicked in. I mean, like, he really knew that he had an option. But he felt that self-preservation was more important in that moment per his voices. And that is the biggest slap in the face because where one death may have been accidental, the other four were absolutely intentional by means of cleaning up what happened to the first child. And if you take the time to listen to the tape he says that Natan was the start of all of this and I find that to be bullshit Natan was the catalyst so yeah he may have been suffering from mental illness as well as psychosis from taking drugs but he did some really horrible things to his children after an accident transpired then he couldn't bear parting with his babies for you know nine days but I find that it's even crueler to have placed these children in the second row seating of a Cadillac Escalade in the hotness of the late summertime in upstate South Carolina. I know exactly how fucking hot it gets. Alright. Hot as balls. You know. Which causes decomposition. To obviously. Become you know. A rapid thing. And then to drive around. Zigzagging through the southeast. With these babies. On, you know, not knowing what you're going to do with them until you finally discard of their remains. By this point, after that whole wrecker situation and the, pe- the fact that the kids were exposed to the heat and that vehicle moving around, decomposing, and then um, being placed in black trash bags, it was everything about this situation was just cruel, inhumane, horribly wrong. And sorry, not sorry, the death penalty was was handed down. And I believe that given the severity and nature of this crime, um, I cannot disagree with the uh, penalty phase that, you know, happened when he was given death. Um, dear Lord, I have no idea where else to go with this. It was just a horrible... It was just horrible. It should never have happened. Um, you know, he needed more of a support system around him um, to help him regain some control and semblance of normality, I think. Uh, 
going transitioning from being a married father with five children to a divorced uh primary primary custodial guardian of five children um and i feel like that was a disservice to him because who would not be overwhelmed with you know while you love your children it can you know three is overwhelming sometimes so i can only imagine five with the youngest two being babies um you know uh so i feel like there were many disservices done not only on the part of dss but you know just just everything everything sucked about this um i felt horrible for his ex-wife to hear her scream and wail for the emptiness that is the loss of five her five of her children plus a miscarriage that they had had as well um that tim also took extremely hard you know um you know that's a lot so that's it you guys oh I have nothing else to say. I don't even want to hit you with outro music. I just want to say adios, you guys. I will talk to you guys very soon. I'm Kimberly. This is what had happened. See you in May. Have a great weekend. Bye.